The 1960s were a golden age of war movies, especially ones about the Second World War. The Guns of Navarone didn't exactly create the subgenre of commando raid flicks in 1961, but it elevated it from a B-movie staple to a big-budget, big-actor special effects extravaganza. So what if the special effects included turning a camera on its side to make a climbing Gregory Peck believable? This movie has knife fights, beautiful partisans, and a full helping of plummeting Nazi corpses. As a part of our war movie suite, we thought we'd join the Greek resistance and sip some ouzo while watching Anthony Quinn shoot and scoot through the mountains of the Aegean Islands. Grab some anise-flavored Greek spirits and get to Lushing. It's time for episode 69 of Toasting the Classics, The Guns of Navarone. Welcome to Toasting the Classics, the podcast where we take something that people call a classic and talk about it while drinking something inspired by the classic. I've got two guest hosts this week. Who do I got? Uh, this is Chris returning again. And Bill. Chris, have you ever done a solo show with me or have you only done team-ups? A couple of solo shows, I think. We did uh, The Hobbit. but The first one we did was a solo. That was a Pratchett book. Oh, you're right. Yes, that's true. That's true. Quite Actually, a pretty popular episode, as it turns out. But that, that one, uh, people like that one. Bill, you and I did a solo. We did... Oh, uh, uh, Smoke Signals. Smoke Signals, right. Smoke Signals, which was why I sort of suggested Dance with Dances with Wolves for this one, because I was like, maybe we should do this suite of Native American films, which would be kind of cool. What did we decide to do instead? It was your call, right? That This is true. And, and I will let people into the twisted, tangled web that is my thinking here. I have a bottle of Uzo that I received as a gift in a gift set with two little Uzo glasses and a bottle of Uzo. And I was looking at it and thinking to myself, I will never open that bottle of Uzo if I don't have a good reason to. So I thought, let's find something inspired by the country of Greece. And I looked up a list of movies from Greece. I thought about doing something, you know, like we did Marcus Aurelius's meditations at one point. We could have done any number of ancient Greek books. But I thought a movie would be a little more fun for this show. So I looked up a big Greek wedding. We could have done my big fat Greek wedding. Actually, (laughs) There was a scene in this film that uh, was a little bit of a big fat Greek wedding, which which is funny because, you know, I was thinking about it. I I was in Greece. I studied there for a little bit and I walked into the middle of a gigantic wedding in some mountain village somewhere. And everybody was wearing these really traditional costumes and stuff. It looked just like that. It was exactly what happened in this movie. The movie I ended up suggesting to you guys was uh, The Guns of Navarone, which I've never seen. Or at least maybe my dad made me watch it when I was a little kid and I don't remember it. Had you guys seen this one before? I had not seen it before. Okay. You know, I thought I had, but I I didn't recognize anything until the very end of it. So I think I've really only caught the last 40 minutes on cable at some point when I was a little kid. Okay. Okay. It was pretty consistent. I mean, it's not like one of those movies where the last 40 minutes is the only part you'd want to watch. I felt like there was consistently a lot of action and stuff going on through the film. Oh, somebody want to try a synopsis? Synopsis. I've got pages and pages of notes. I, I thought it was an interesting movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, binders, binders and binders full of uh, notes about <laughs> The Guns of Navarone. All right, sounds good. Well, let's see. We start out with Commodore Jensen uh, talking to Captain Keith Mallory about this uh, dangerous mission. Uh, Technically, I need to back up a little bit because the movie starts out with a crawl thanking the Greek government, the Greek Royal Air Force Navy, and the uh, British Air Force all over a shot of the Parthenon with this crawling, scrolling crawl that reminded me a heck of a lot like Star Wars. A little bit like Star Wars, yeah. And and I was actually thinking that this, like the impossible mission 
you know, to go on and, and blow something up that can destroy the rebel base. I mean, the, the island where all the British troops are. There's a little bit of Star Wars in there, I guess. I, I can see that. They, yeah, uh, the giant guns that are shooting with the the... the the crew, you know, going to position. Yes, yes. The, know, shot, that, the shot, the shot of the guy standing next to the firing guns. It looks just like in the Death Star, the guys with the big helmets, like watching the laser go off. And yeah, helmets, yeah a callback in Star Wars, I think. And I thought the voiceover, to bring it back to something we've covered on the show before, the voiceover at the beginning sounds just like Casablanca. You know, there's that whole explanation oh. of what's going on in the, in the World War II campaign that this is a part of. So kind of connecting the dots there. Something from the 40s, something from the 70s. This movie, 1961. There were a whole bunch of uh, great, big, huge, big budget World War II movies around this time. And the runtime on this one was surprising. I did not expect it to be two and a half hours. Yeah. Well, I think The Longest Day, the one that the one that Clinton and I covered not too long ago, sort of touched that off because that was a big budget film. And it was a long movie. And I think that they figured they could do it. They figured it's history. People will sit through it. And they just started making these great, big, huge, epic movies. I think The Great Escape's pretty long. Yeah, uh, it is. Dirty Dozen. There's a whole bunch around the same time. Really good, really oh. good quality World War II movies that stand up. Like when you watch This them. felt fairly Dirty Dozen to me in a lot of ways. Uh, a lot like Dirty Dozen, yeah. The survival it, rate's a little better. Than uh, yeah, quite a lot better. <laughs> this one also did open with, I think, one of the worst matte paintings I've ever seen in any movie ever. What's the map painting of? I'm trying to think. Oh, of the town? The town that's on the island? No, it's a map painting of a sky with a bomber. And oh. another bomber is sort of crash landing in front of it. But as the map painting scrolls over, the bomber in the background doesn't move. It's just hanging suspended in the air for about 10 seconds. There was another one where they showed a map, like the Indiana Jones style map, where you show where the plane's going to go is what I thought they were doing, but it was actually a weird kind of, and you could see the plane in the background. And I thought the plane was just jiggling. Like the, like somebody shook their arms when they were holding the card, like to do the shot, but, but it was actually just a weird uh, transposed. I don't know. It was just, it was a strange mix up. And, and I really did think the matte painting of the town was also really lousy. You know, it's funny that you guys say that because this film actually won for, I think it was either, it was either for special effects or it won for, yeah, won the Academy Award that year. Uh, it was nominated, first of all, for like seven Academy Awards. Did it get Best Adapted Screenplay? Because I, I gather the original was a novel. I can see that. It was a novel. Yeah, that's right. And it's with the same guy who wrote Ice Station Zebra, wrote the yes. book for this one. Oh, really? Huh. That's how I got Mandela affected today when I was when I was contacting you. I was, trying to, I was like, was that the one where Roy Scheider was in Antarctica after World War III and he was trying to kill the Russian? And then I looked it up and I was like, that movie doesn't exist. I, I, I could not find that movie anywhere. It sounds like a really cool movie. You should do a screenplay for a Roy Schneider movie. I, I, no, well, it doesn't have to be Roy Schneider, obviously. I, I think he may not be with us anymore, but does everybody have their Uzo? Yes. yes. Okay. So how are we drinking it? Mine is over one giant spherical clear ice cube. Very tasty. Okay. So nice. you're with ice. So you're getting, uh, I'll let Bill do this because Bill was the best first on the effect. So what happens when you mix ouzo with water slash ice? It's the essential oils within the the ouzo. Um, my particular ouzo was made with anise and cardamom and cinnamon. What ends up happening is that because the essential oils are... It's because they're homophobic, right? They're they're, essential oils. Not, not homophobic, no. Hydro. 
I oh, that makes way more sense than what I. Yes, remember. yes. I'm sorry if I if I used the wrong term earlier. You know, this is so. So I like I said, I was in Greece and we had ouzo a couple of times. It was not my favorite drink. This is so much better when it's served cold like this. I don't know how anyone drinks this warm. It would be like gumming on warm licorice or something. It would it's be vile. There's a version of it from Turkey called Rocky. And it's so funny because I, we went to we went to Turkey and I was like, oh, you guys have ouzo too. And they're like, no, this is Rocky. As, you know, the Greeks and the Turks, not a lot of love lost between those two countries. But I'm like, you're drinking the exact same drink. There's no difference between these two things. But like they can't admit it because they hate each other so much. I'm having a little food with mine because I was told you don't want to absorb all the sugars into your stomach. Yeah, you might get drunker than you plan on. Well, yeah. you'd want to add some, add some cheese, a little some, some baby bells. As usual, the synopsis is completely broken down, hasn't it? So, well, yeah, that, that's entirely my fault. We started off with Commodore Jensen uh, bringing so Chris, in. Captain. Chris, let me get this is a new idea. You have 30 seconds synopsis of the whole film. Go. Oh, man, you got to let me prep for that. Oh, I can I, do don't, the tell me, pitch. don't tell me everybody's name. Don't just just the basics. What happens in this movie? Dude, no, you got to prep me for that. I can, I can 100% do. Bill, like do a, you accept the 30 second synopsis challenge? There are these guys, and they went okay. in Greece, and they were like these all these British guys. Uh, Greg okay. Beck was supposed to be from New Zealand, or he was in the book. Oh, I was about to ask that because the whole time I was like, is Gregory Peck supposed to be British? I don't know. Yeah, understand. he's supposed to be from New Zealand. Yeah. Because there's one guy that shows up and, and and he says something. He's kind of obnoxious and somebody goes, ah, he's Australian. And I was like, well, I'm glad you told me because the actor doesn't have an Australian accent in the slightest. That's but, the guy who's saying bloody every 30 seconds. Yeah, right. yeah he says bloody a lot, which is meant to convey his Australianness to me, I think. Even, yeah, so even the Greek guy wasn't Greek. He was Mexican. Is Anthony Quinn Mexican? Because he played um, either Zapata or Pancho. He played Pancho Villa in, in a big movie one time. Yeah, but he's Mexican-American. Anthony oh, Quinn okay. actually is. Okay, I wasn't sure. Because he does the accent a lot of the time. And I'm like, is he doing that accent? Or is he, or is he, he just yeah. is he just the swarthy British guy that they used to get to play Mexicans in movies? Or is he actually Mexican? You <laughs> well, so anyway, so yeah, so we got like Gregory Peck. You got Anthony Quinn, you got Neville, who I think was the only British guy who was actually in World War II in the film. Well, the writer was, I think they said David Niven was in World War II, wasn't he? Niven, he yeah. Was, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the, the chemist. Yeah. So he was, the, so was, he was the, the explosives expert. So was the major, actually. The, the nominal guy in charge was a major fighting in Algeria during World War II. Okay. This is Lucky we're talking about? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I really thought that they would wait longer to make Lucky's name ironic. They really, it's just that within the first 45 minutes of the movie, you're like, ooh, yeah, okay, that's not. Well, they're kind of boxed into it because, uh, so Gregory Peck's in charge. He's Captain Mallory. His job is simply to drop them off at the island and then leave. He's not right. supposed to go on the mission. I, I actually didn't catch that the first time I watched it. Well, no, he's supposed to climb. He's supposed to get them up. He, the, he's the, the expert cliff. climber. So he's supposed to climb to the top at the very least. And I, it wasn't And get clear them off. And then he's yeah. supposed to get the heck out. So, yeah, I was. I honestly wasn't clear on that. I wasn't sure whether he was supposed to stick around after the mountain climbing in the first place. But then the boat, the boat gets uh, wrecked and destroyed. Anyway, we're yeah. totally doing this out of order. Let me, let me take a version of the thirty second challenge just so people have a structure to sort of understand this movie. It's World War II. It's nineteen forty three, and a couple of guys are given a a small commando mission to go onto an island occupied by the Germans in the Aegean destroy some gigantic guns 
um, which would otherwise be able to destroy the British ships that are coming in to pick up a bunch of British soldiers who've been marooned on an island. Hijinks ensue there. That's the story. So we've got, we have to have Gregory Peck. He gets hired because he's an expert mountain climber to take them up the cliffs of insanity on one side of this little island. That's what we're talking about right now because the ship gets the, the ship. Did the boat remind anybody else of the Orca from Jaws? Not to go back to Roy Scheider. I'm, pr- I'm pretty much- And that it's a kind of a piece of crap boat that's taking on water and has to be pumped out. Yeah, the, the part where the guy's down inside and he's fixing the fixing the engine. I was like, I think I think Spielberg stole that shot, like used that in Jaws, like where the guy's down below, like banging on the engine. Like it's almost the same yeah. thing. I really enjoyed Niven's take on this. He, he keeps coming up, up to Mallory like, yes, sir, I've inspected the ship and I want to advise you, uh, I can't swim. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the best lines in the film, honestly. He's like, I still can't swim. Like, I don't know if I want to ruin this fact right now, but but you know what? It's a pretty good segue. Did you guys read what happened to David Niven in the filming of the movie? There's a bit at the end where he has to be in the dirty water underneath the elevator shaft because he's the explosives guy. And he plants <laughs> he plants the explosives on the runners for the elevator so that when the when the wheel comes down, it'll make a contact, set off the bomb and explode the fortress. that has got all these shells and stuff in there. And so he was in the water for the scene talking to Gregory Peck. He got so sick from an infection he caught in that water because apparently they actually stuck him in filthy bilgy water to film it. He was out of the filming of the, of the movie for like weeks and weeks. He came back to try to finish it, got sick again, and ended up recovering for months. Like the guy yeah, was in the hospital died. for seven weeks after that. I remember reading. Yeah. I didn't know that's how it happened, but yeah, that's how it happened. Yeah, in the in the in the nasty water. So you're looking at the scene. Apparently, that scene was so so important that it almost killed the man. I was like, you know, they really could have used clean water. I don't think anybody would have known. <laughs> I don't or just food coloring. I mean, it didn't have to be. Right, exactly. Exactly. I don't <laughs> and to make know. it super realistic, have lots of grease and oil and mud. Yeah. I don't really think they well, needed to go into an actual Greek village hole to film that scene. I think maybe the most important move- scene in the movie takes place on the boat as they're heading to the island. When okay. he tells his friend, the major what the deal is between himself and the Greek officer he's with. And we get kind of the thesis of the movie. Greek so, Greek officer, you mean the partisan, you mean... Uh, Andrea. Yeah, Anthony Quinn's character. Andrea's so apparently they've been working together for over a year. And what happened is Mallory, the main character, let a German force pass him. He had the opportunity to stop them back at, early in the war when he had ideals. And he let them through and they wound up killing the family of the Greek officer, Stavros. And Stavros holds... Mallory personally responsible and has promised Mallory that he will kill him after the war is over. And a very ironic thought that I had about that was when I read about it and I found out that it had been a novel, I thought to myself, you know what? You can tell when, when something, when an action movie has been made from a novel, they have things like that. They have little backstories such as what happened between, um, between these two characters. And then I, and then I read later, no, that was actually the screenwriter came up with that. That wasn't in the book. Really? That extra detail that, that, added a little bit of something between Gregory Peck's character and Anthony Quinn's character was something that the screenwriter came up with. So, I mean, right there, Academy Award for adaptation. I think when you added something that felt like it was from a book, I think you did your job. That's But that's not why I think it's the most important scene. I think it's most important okay. to see because the thesis is laid out there too, where Gregory Peck tells his friend, the only way to win a war is to be as nasty as the enemy. Right. And he says something like, and I only hope at the end of it, we don't wake up and find ourselves have become the worst for it. Yeah, that's a um, 
an ongoing discussion about war, I think, in general. There's a whole there's a whole literature about like the American Civil War and how it started out as being like, well, ironically, civil, you know, with people actually giving each other parole and stuff like that when captured. And then it ended with, you know, increasing levels of violence and campaigns of attrition and what animals, what animals war makes of, of everyone. I think that was definitely a theme in this film. I have this theory of actors that there are certain kinds of actors that are great actors and there's other ones that are great movie stars. And what I mean by that is there's guys like Gary Oldman that are like phenomenal actors. They can turn into different people and just, you know, and just blow you away with different, completely different personalities. Then there's guys like Harrison Ford. He's Harrison Ford and everything, and he's super charismatic, but he's really not like a different guy in a lot of things. That's my movie star. And I, yeah. I would have said, I would have said Gregory Peck was kind of like that, but I looked at his IMDb and I hadn't really thought about him a lot recently. And I was like, oh, that's right. He's Atticus Finch. Like, yeah. that's a that's a gigantic part. He's not playing Atticus Finch in this movie. He's a diff, totally different guy in this movie. Absolutely. And he also played a really famous version of Captain Ahab. And he's amazing as Captain Ahab. You know, he's he's not like this guy who's got a wooden leg, which if it was Harrison Ford, you'd be like, that's Han Solo if Han Solo had a wooden leg. And everybody's like, oh, regarding Henry. It's like, yeah, that's Han Solo who got shot and he's paralyzed now. It's the same guy. I kind of had the opposite take. I thought he was really good, but I'm not sure he's right for the role. Well, he seems a little old, frankly. It's a very physical role. So it's a little hard to believe him climbing up the rocks. And by the way, I'm pretty sure he climbed the same section of rock like 12 times and pounded a, pounded a python into it over and over again. I was like, that's the same rock. That was, that was totally a Batman trick, by the way, right? Yes. Yeah, they it, were... it was turned on its side. Yes, I think so. Except Batman had the sense to laugh about the trick and show that it was a trick, if I remember right. Or was that Austin Powers? Am I, compl- am I Mandela affecting Austin Powers now? I think both of them laughed at it in different ways. Batman was more campy, whereas Austin Powers was definitely making fun of it. One part of this movie just before that that we're talking about that I really loved and reminded me of you guys and made me glad I'm doing this with you. They're on their boat headed to the island and a German patrol boat approaches them, right? And we're talking like a heavily armored patrol boat for World War II. It's got deck guns. It's got like 25 guys on it, all with automatic weapons. It comes alongside. And I was thinking to myself, now this is an encounter that the DM wrote up as a stealth encounter, possibly a bargaining or a bluffing encounter. And what do, what do the PCs do? They go murder hobo on it and attack the patrol boat and kill everyone on the patrol boat in like a huge, you know, everybody's shooting everywhere. And I'm like, that is 100% a moment we would have in a D&D game or and a Star Wars, especially a Star Wars game. I can imagine and the patrol the boat explodes next to them. Yes. <laughs> no repercussions at all. Everyone's fine. Exactly. exactly. We just eliminated part of the German Navy on this mission. And, and it's just it's just part of the fun. You know, I thought that was I great. was sure that the German captain was going to come on the boat and like randomly pick one of the guys to interrogate. And it, it would be one of the two actually Greek guys on there and they'd get off and, you know, no big deal. Right. But no, that's not what happens. <laughs> no, they did, they did exactly what a, what a party of, of uh, role playing adventurers would do. They just attacked and started shooting yeah. everyone. In fact, it's not the only time that happened in a situation where I thought maybe. There's there's a sequence where the they get captured in the town and they got the SS guys coming after them and he's starting to interrogate them. 
And Anthony Quinn decides to roll this bluff check. I don't know what he's doing. He starts falling on the ground and like pleading and like trying all this stuff. And it's like, he just fails. He just fails the bluff check. And then they attack. <laughs> well, like, it's hilarious because the guy in charge has a picture of him with his yeah, real name. Right, he's like, right. no, I think you're this person. He's like, and he's no, like, no, no I'm not I'm that person. person. Like, oh, okay. All right. You're not that person. Fair enough. And I mean, this is a war. Nobody would lie. We're all, we're all men of honor. Right. There's another part where um, one of the, one of the party, the major we were talking about, the one who used to be called Lucky, and I'm guessing they're going to change his name now. Um, he had a peg leg or something. He gets badly injured and they're trying to decide what to do with him. And they're like, well, we could leave him here and the Germans will get him and he'll tell them everything. We could take him with us, which would be extremely difficult. And then the one guy's like, or we could shoot him. <laughs> and I was thinking, if again, if that was a D&D game, you'd be like, oh, the paladin suddenly remembered he needs to go somewhere else right now. <laughs> and, then, and, then guys, and then you guys would just stab the dude. And then Taylor has another awesome line there. He says, oh, why don't we just throw him over a cliff and save the bullet? They've actually wrecked their boat. And I want to talk about that real quick, not because of it's tremendously important to the plot or anything, but yep. this is kind of back to what Bill talked about, where there are certain shots that are awesome. It's them on a film stage with water being tossed around. and The boat crash was terrific. Yeah. yeah. The, yeah, the yeah, crash really itself, fantastic. Yeah, Some of the it. model work looked a little rough yeah. Yeah. but they were doing the best they could for the time so that that part was really good not like the matte painting at the very start at the very end giant spoiler here i know but the movie called the, the guns of navarone they're sent out to spike the german guns ultimately they are successful when they spike those guns the first 20 30 seconds of that look really good and then when the when the when the guns start actually exploding and taking the top off the island I expected a kaiju to come out of the back. It looked very... It was terrible. Very bad. Big yeah. styrofoam model exploding. I had a little latchesis here in my notes. I just said, explosion isn't great. I mean, it, it just really is. But, but it uh, won best, best special effects for the year from the Oscars, so... It's hard to believe. I mean, I'm trying to think what would have been... It's got some terrific German equipment, which is always nice. Although, I, again, like they did in Patton, I'm pretty sure that actual tanks were American tanks. Those are not German. Oh, they, were, they totally were, yeah. Yeah. It's 1961, so... Yeah, it's yeah. Tough. They always do a great job with the half-tracks and the and the sort of just other armored vehicles. Those always look terrific in these movies. I don't know whether those were more available or whether maybe you could just put a sort of fake turret onto a truck and make it look like a German... But anyway, those look cool. The tanks are always just American tanks uh, from what I've seen before. The howitzers um, look real. The howitzers? You mean like the actual, the, the, the guns? Like the, the big, big guns? yeah, the big guns. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. The only the only trouble I had with that whole sequence, I mean, we were thinking about the bit, how it looks like the guys in Star Wars, like just like that. But it also... I thought that was that great. Scene, did, that, did that scene remind anybody else of anything? Oh, those are the German guys who were supposed to load the guns standing there watching the guns fire. Was anybody else thinking of Devo? They had, they had like those uniforms that I guess are supposed to protect <laughs> you from, from guns. I hadn't been thinking about that, but I can totally see how you got there. Indiana Jones connection there, I felt like a little bit with the Nazis in their encampment, the radar, although the use of the howitzers or the, I don't know if they were howitzers, but whatever they were, the big the big guns with the radar technology. Like the Germans having radar like that? Using... They're kind of famous for not having had radar. But that may have just been in 1940 in the Battle of Britain. This is 43. So I, I really don't know how accurate that is. It's a really good technological question. Would a German emplacement on one of the islands in the Aegean have had radar track the ships? I, I don't know. 
I don't know the answer. And to then be able to hone in with the the big cannons. Well, they, they couldn't hone in very well, right? They, they could see the ships and they could tell yeah. generally where the ship were, was. Oh, and by the way, one thing I love about this movie, they don't translate. They just give you, the, the guys are just speaking German. So I was like, you know, like I took German, I know a little bit. Some of the time I was like, oh, he said, I know exactly what he just said. And other times, especially in those battle scenes that are firing, I'm like, I'm getting just enough that this is awesome. This is so much fun. I don't know what they're saying, but it's like, if he, it, it's this level of authenticity that I just really like. Thank you for saying oh, yeah. that. I've got a note here. It really stood out to me too. They don't translate any of the German or any yeah. of the Greek. And I think it adds a lot to the film. It does. It puts you in a sense of like uh, Jay and I did to catch a thief and to catch a thief did the same thing. There's sequences where there's like, there was a joke in French that if you speak French, you get the joke and you're part of the movie. And if you don't, you get the sense that the character who's American is like lost listening to this conversation in French. And so it, you get different versions of it. And I, I, I like that kind of thing. Like when they're on the boat and Gregory Peck is speaking Greek to the Germans and I'm listening to it and I'm like, I, I know what he's saying. Like, I understand the gist of what he's saying, but I'm also put in the place of the guy sitting on the boat being like, Jesus, I hope nobody asked me anything in Greek because I don't know a single word of Greek. Like it gives you that, that immersion. I think it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, and they actually had to use for Peck's German. They actually had to use a voiceover. I'm trying to remember when, yeah, he speaks German. He won't speak it. There's the one scene where the guy gets on the phone to call and he's like, and remember, I speak German. Perfect. Right. And I was right. like, maybe you, maybe you should have said that in German to sell it. Like that would have come. Yeah, no. Well, speak, like right. the Commodore was like, "Oh well, we want you because you happen to be this great right. German speaker." Speak German like a German and Greek like a Greek, and, yeah. and, and the best mountain like climber it. in the world. So there's a famous mountain climber named Mallory and another one named Hillary. There's both. So is it is it George Mallory who's the famous one? Uh, it's Thomas Mallory, and okay. he's the one I think that died on Everest, and then. Okay. Hillary is the one that made it up with Tenzing Norgay. He put in a couple of pegs, right? A couple, yeah, right. He didn't tie it off. He didn't actually take the rope and actually attach it to the... No, he's using, he's using the pythons, which are just to, to climb. You use them as, like, actual... As handholds? Yeah, no, as footholds, I think. As well, as hand or footholds. I think I yeah. think he actually did. I think he used it as at one point as a handhold, and then he used it again as a... The guys tried to use it as a... Or did use it as a leg hold. Little. Yeah, I feel like that was a concession because if you're actually not going vertically, you're going sideways, then the rope falls the wrong way and it looks funny. Yeah, that's true. The, the rope would be laying flat on the rock in a way that definitely gave away that it, gravity was not operating on it in the way that you would expect. What did you guys think of uh, the truth serum conversation? Scopalamine. Scopalamine. Yeah, I looked that up. Apparently that uh, is a real thing, but not. There's a lot of dispute about it. Like nobody's ever done a study about whether it's a real thing. Basically, they abandoned the trials of trying to figure out whether it works because uh, because it's it harms people. It has a whole bunch of bad side effects. Did you see the travel advisory uh, for Colombia? Yes, it said forty thousand incidents a year in Colombia. Fifty thousand. Forty, yeah, forty. But I mean, we're talking five figures, fifty multiple, multiple tens of thousands of people that are getting that are getting drugged in Colombia. I don't know if those aren't all Americans. But that's all kinds of people. One of my friends yeah. was a, uh, he was a poet and he was doing a, I don't know what you call it, like some kind of fellowship in Colombia. And he went down there and he had to sit down with a state department briefing. And they, like, before they would give you your visa to be there, they, they had to give him a briefing. Like, this is something people are going to try on you because you're a white guy hanging out in Bogota. Like, 
somebody's going to try to drug. Like if you see a beautiful woman, do not take drinks from a beautiful woman because she is, she is trying to drug you. I was like, okay. All right. So. Yeah. The majority of these incidents occur in nightclubs and bars and usually men perceived to be wealthy are targeted by young, attractive women. They called it, he said it was called Burundanga is the local word for the, for the drug. But here's something about as topical as it could possibly be about this movie about World War II starring a bunch of people who are, I think, 100% dead, made in 1961. The 62-year-old movie. Is my math right there? This movie is 62 years old. Here's about as topical as it could possibly be. At the beginning of the movie, what, what do you see right when the movie opens? Like, what's the building? The Parthenon. And apparently, the Elgin Marbles are going to be going back to Greece now. Oh, That's really? The British yeah, Museum... Wave the white British, flag there. That's fascinating. The British Museum has agreed to sit down and have a conversation about the Elgin Marbles and to negotiate some kind of a solution. So apparently that's actually happening. And I'm, I, I don't 100% know the story of how they acquired the marbles. Um, but I think it was just in World War II. They straight out stole them before the Germans took over, right? I kind of think so. But also they probably preserved them from the Germans. I don't know. Because the, the Parthenon, if you've seen the Parthenon, you, you've seen what it looks like, the state that it's in. Yeah. You know, that, that didn't happen in ancient Greek times. Like that did not happen a thousand years ago. That happened when the Greeks revolted against the Turks and the Turks were storing gunpowder in the building and the building exploded. That's when almost all the damage was done to the building. Fair, in, in fairly recent times, in other words, like around the time of Lord Byron's, I don't know, 1810 or something like that. Yeah, I, I have to revise what I just said. Apparently a lot of them were, were taken from 1801 to 1812, not, not World War II. Yeah, during the, during the Greek Civil War, yeah. Uh, not the Greek Civil War, what do you call it? The Greek Revolt. I think a drinking game for this movie would be excellent. What would you, so I wanna suggest the first thing we drink for, which is uh, every time a German body lands in the water. Does anybody that, else that, have a suggestion? That, that wanes out a little bit as, as we get in further along. But Yeah, the Germans do land in the water more often at the beginning of the movie. But at the beginning of the movie. Although when uh, Quinn and uh, what's, what was the, the, the right. Greek woman uh, when they steal the boat. Maria, maybe? Or am I just... Assuming a Greek woman's name is Maria, it's not a bad assumption. It is. It is Maria. Maria and Anna were two okay. Greek right. women. Maria and Anna. You're going to have one, a couple of very disappointed people when those German guys get thrown off the dry moat. Where's that? Where's that happen? I'm, I'm not remembering. Uh, when they're, it's toward the end of the movie when they're taking over a place to sleep for the night, and they drive up and they get those two Germans and they both get stabbed and they get tossed off the side of this bridge and they land at the bottom oh. of a dry moat. So I a little bit, little bit of variety there. No water so, that they land in. Revision to the drinking game. Every time a German body plummets, just any Ooh. plummet, just general yeah. plummeting, plummet no matter what the no matter what they impact on. If they plummet, you drink. I think that's fair. Have you guys ever played Ikari Warriors or Commando? Commando, yeah. Okay, so you know how if you see like six or seven guys, you always throw a grenade. I think you should drink in this movie every time someone throws a grenade into a conveniently clustered group of Germans and manages to kill like five of them at one time. Cause there's a lot well, of grenade chucking. It's always just Anthony Quinn, but my personal rule would be. No, it's Papa, uh, Papa, Demos. Papa Demos gets a couple with the grenades. Doesn't he? Am I wrong? No, I, thought, I thought he was. It might've been, been, been Anthony Quinn. Yeah. Might've been but, Anthony Quinn. So it, was the, it was both Papa Demos. Yeah. He just goes at it with the, the machine gun there. He's just like, he go, he, he goes full barbarian race. Bill, you gave, you gave me one of my a great segue to something I noticed. We did a show on Red Dawn. We did a show on Pat. Red Dawn ripped off Patton hard. And watching this movie, I realized 
Red Dawn ripped off Guns and Navarone a bunch of times also. There's the sequence where Papademos just goes see Thomas Howell on all the Germans out in the middle. Remember, remember, remember in Red Dawn when, when the, the helicopter comes down after him and strafes him in the ravine? There's a bit in this movie where a guy gets strafed in a ravine. And then later on, the guy does the thing C. Thomas Howell does. He just decides to start shooting all the Germans that are charging at him. And then he just dies. And it's the same. I was like, the look on his, the look on the actor's face, I said to myself, oh, he's going to die here because this is the part from Red Dawn. And there was another part where they uncover the traitor, right? Yeah. They're staying, they're staying in the, ru- not the ruins, but I don't know. They're staying somewhere. Uh, and, and they uncover that there's a traitor in the group. Gregory Peck is about to shoot her. And I was thinking to myself, I said, oh, no. Maria's going to shoot her because that's what happens in Red Dawn. Patrick Swayze is supposed to shoot the traitor and he can't do it. And see Thomas Howell shoots her, shoots him instead. So I was not surprised at all when that happened because it was just taken out of the other, uh, the other movie took it from this one. I don't even think people do these things consciously. I think they've seen, seen these movies so many times. They take these things and they use them again. There was a bit where he's trying to reach the rope when they're climbing. Gregory Peck is like constantly reaching over and trying to grab the rope. And I, it, I had to pause the movie because it was driving me crazy. I was like, what is that from? Some movie took that. And I thought about it. Can you guys do it faster than I could? Where he's like swinging back and forth, trying to grab the rope, missing, getting the rope on like the third try to ratchet up the tension. Indiana Jones? That's what I thought. I thought it was Temple of Doom because I was trying to, I was thinking to myself, what are the great climbing sequences in movie history? The Temple of Doom ladder, right? But it's not, yeah. it's Jurassic Park. When the T-Rex chases them over the edge and they've got that rope, and he's got the girl hanging on him and he keeps trying to reach the rope and he swings over and he grabs it on like the third attempt. And then, and then the oh. car crashes down. I was like, that's it's, I don't think these directors even remember that they, they're not taking it from it, but you try to recreate the great scenes you saw when you were a kid in some way. Oh yeah. Drinking game proposal. Go for it, Phil. Drinking game proposal. What's your, what's your rule? When would you drink in this film? Every time someone calls David Niven, the professor. Every time Gregory avoids, avoids speaking German. Every time someone brandishes a knife. Oh, <laughs> nice. yes. Knives. Oh, another segue. The actor that can't stab people, right? The guy who has a problem. But, stabbing. The, but who's expert with close hand combat? Do you guys know that actor from anything? No. No. So one of my favorite movies when I was a kid was Zulu. It's a Michael Caine movie about the battle yeah. of, uh, it's not Isandawana, it's Rourke's Drift. And it's yeah, just it's like a bunch of British guys fighting off. You know, it's like 4,000 Zulus trying to kill them. That guy plays the sort of malingering British soldier who's trapped in the hospital. And um, let's just say he's a dynamic character in that film. So I saw this and I was like, oh, he's like the coward. He's like malingering. He doesn't want to stab anybody. And I was like, he's going to be a dynamic character that at the end of the movie decides to stab somebody without thinking. And that doesn't happen. Yeah, in fact, that kind of gets him killed in a way. Sort it gets him killed, which reminded me of Saving Private Ryan. Steven Spielberg watched this movie like a hundred times. There's a bunch of Steven Spielberg stuff in this movie. Like you can see that he saw this movie a bunch. Of, anyway, what happened on the boat? That guy was like going. It was a little unclear, wasn't that guy. it? The actual dynamics. It was like he went to stab the dude, and he did stab him. He stabbed him, but also got stabbed. Yeah. The guy turned around and took his knife and stabbed him back, I think. And then, but then what happened to the German? I think they both died. They both died. Was he there on the boat when? I think, yeah, I think actually when they come on to the boat later, they show both of them, they're dead together. They don't show it. And, and, and a lot of people playing the drinking game are going to be frustrated because obviously there was a German corpse on the boat that could have been thrown. It could have been thrown on. Oh, 
God, you know, you can't leave these things sitting on the table. You really cannot leave money on the table that way. If there's a German corpse. That can Maria be should have been on that. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yes. Maria needs to be on German body cleanup detail. I don't know. She was driving the boat. She was driving all the cars. She's Obviously, contributing. she's contributing. I don't mean, I don't mean to relegate her to cleanup duty. That's true. I mean, was she more like in charge of transportation than Peck was? She was definitely relegated to cleanup duty. She literally is the one who took out the spy. She did that too. She did. She did. Although they just left that body. Yeah. That, that yeah. Body I, my personal theory is she 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 shot the spy to flirt with with Quinn because I think yeah. he was kind of into that. So so okay. we agreed that Maria and. Andrea have a thing. Oh, that, yeah. that was express in the yeah. film. Right? It wasn't expressed, oh. but it seemed, it seemed implied. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. That was one of my favorite scenes where Gregory Peck was sitting in between the two of them and they were flirting with each other. Yeah, that was pretty good. The look on his face. Yeah. Because she was like, Excuse me, sir. And he was like, Yes. And she was like, I was talking to him. And the look on his face, he was like, mm. Like he kind of did the, the same other thing. sir. I was like, that was pretty good. And they didn't really make a big deal out of it. It was a very subtle look. Anna's flirtation with Mallory. Anna's flirtation. Anna being the one who's bad. I think it's pretty heavily implied that they were intimate in that scene where she goes out and he holds her. Yeah, it's oh. like... The, you think? Yeah. See, I, I, you know what? I'm probably... She was seducing him. Because to me, it looked it looked to me like a like a sixteen year old girl talking to a sixty year old man was what the actual actors were. So I didn't really think of them as being a potential romantic coupling. Probably I'm supposed to think of them as uh, as being a hookup, but I don't know how to. I think it was pretty clear, and I think that's why it was such a big deal when David Niven revealed her as a traitor that he wanted Mallory to kill her because uh, it was an yeah. inversion of what Mallory had done to his partner. Yes, that, oh, interesting. So there's a little, there's a queer read on that. Did you notice when the two partners introduce each other, they call themselves partners and yeah. I've been working with him for a long time. You're a lucky man. Says, Ooh, yeah, you're right. Maria to, to Quinn when he. I was thinking that the whole partner thing was kind of weird. And that maybe, you know, and it was a novel. So it may have been in the novel and then crept through into the script, if you know what I mean. Because there's no way you'd write a movie in 1961 and have an actual intended queer text sub. Although you know, never mind. We did a, we did an episode on Spartacus. So what am I talking about? <laughs> yeah, there's, that's true. there's definitely some of that percolating through into pop culture at the time. But um, that's neither here nor there. Did uh, uh, either of you guys look into the guy who played uh, Papadimos, uh, a guy named James Darren? I was wondering, is he related to Bobby Darren? Um, I'm not sure. I, I know a little bit about, about his professional career. This is by far the best movie he was ever in. Yeah. Uh, he was kind of a teen sensation at the time, had a music uh, okay. career going, but okay. he's also in all of the Gidget movies. Well, he, he did have his musical song, his 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 song breakout, and at the thank world. you, yes, big <laughs> Greek wedding. Yeah, that's interesting because I was thinking they had a guy just like him in uh, the Longest Day. There was like a much more handsome young guy who was like a kind of like a pop star. And it's, I was thinking, I was thinking Papa Demos is there for the lady. Yep. He's definitely like a good looking, like kind of, um, what's the word, like a, like a heartthrob that's sort of in the movie randomly. He doesn't say a lot. So you're sort of thinking, oh, they, they just put this guy in here for his face. It, what's his name? Jimmy Darren? James, James William Ercolani or James Darren? How do you spell James Darren? Darren. Is it D-A-R-R-E-N? Or also, no, not not Bobby Darren. I saw some of his last acting credits were for, I think, Deep Space Nine. 
So I, I brought up Darren. Uh, he does serve kind of an important function at, at least one point in the movie where they go to the big Greek wedding and everyone's getting them, getting them a yeah, side yeah. eye because they're like, yeah. these people don't belong here. But then he just sort of sits down at the table and when the roving uh, musicians go around, he sort of steps right. up and improvises a portion. Oh, of and he gets to sing. He actually gets to sing, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. he gets to That's sing right. because he gets to be the musician. But also yeah. when the Germans come calling, everyone there is kind of like, you know, this guy's one of us. He can sing in Greek. We're not going to give him up, which I thought was interesting. And did I you guys to... understand the flower girl in that scene? Because I did that was, that was that was I was a little torn with that at first. That was the Indiana Jones moment I forgot to mention because I was thinking when she runs over to the table, I was thinking it's like when all the little Arab kids come in and they're like, Uncle Indy, Uncle Indy, Uncle, and protect him because nobody wants to shoot in front of the children. That's what I thought was going on there. But by the way, big props to you for admitting the Uzo thing right up front. I was going to see if I could get you to do it toward the end. Admit that what? we're doing what? this solely because you had Uzo, like. You having spare Uzo around the house is the sole reason we're doing this. And look at what a pitiful amount of Uzo I've managed to drink. Like that is going to be on our shelf for the next yeah. 30 years. Dude, I am finishing this bottle today. Good for you. What's the, uh, what's the, what's no, the, I, don't know if I don't know if that's advisable, Bill. It's 42%. Yeah. You, you had some yesterday and you're not halfway through yet. You're not finishing it today, nor should you. <laughs> no, you really shouldn't. That's really not a good idea. But... It's not a good idea, and I don't plan on it. Uzo, did did the Uzo appear in the film? And what was the darker liquor that was that was showing up? Was that a wine or was that some else? Honestly, it was probably wine because I mean wine is a big deal in Greece anyway. So I, I think that's wine. Yeah. So there are a, a number of distilled wines that are okay. popular in Greece. Isn't that just called port? Uh, no, port is port has to be from Portugal, but it'd be brandy. brandy it's actually so it's uh, it's called metoxa. Metoxa. Okay, okay, but it's a distilled wine, is what you're saying. It's a distilled wine, and yeah. that was what we were seeing because those. I think that's what the majority of those things were. Some of them might have been, yeah. but I have a feeling. And I was actually actually one of the other things is the only brand that I saw. If you noticed, all of the bottles that actually had labels were turned opposite. There was a scene in the bar. Um, there's a scene where the guys are waiting for the guns to explode. Like the locals are in a bar and they're sort of waiting to rush out and like help. And there, I'm looking, I was looking at it and there was a sign in Greek behind the guy's head. And I was like, that says soda. It just literally in Greek says soda. And it's written on the wall. I'm like, why would they have that? Who decided that was a little piece of authenticating detail to throw into the scene. But so the other thing I was thinking of was Retsina. What is Retsina? Retsina is it's, um, totally it's a Greek white or rosé uh, resonated wine. That's what I think. That's what uh, Clint and I drank for the Marcus Aurelius episode. Didn't we have Retsina? It's not. There aren't. It's weird that there aren't like really amazing Greek wines. You would think it'd be perfect wine country, right? Like the wine dark sea and like wine is a big part of Greek culture, but it's not a famous country for honestly, neither is Italy, is it? You don't really well, think it, it looked like they were wine. drinking some Chianti. Um maybe. They had like the wickered bottle. Yeah. Yeah, they had something like that. Um when they go to the town and there's like the hospital to get fed. They were in the church. With the with the with the priests, yeah, the church. Yeah, they were yeah. in the church. So I guess we should talk about the betrayal and how they figured it out. Yeah, that's a fun scene. I thought um, the professor does a good job of figuring that out. Yeah. They so the traitor is Anna, who has been progressively through the movie. And I, I did watch this twice, and I was looking for it the second time. And they do an excellent. You watched the movie two times? You watched the movie two times? 
I did. Wow, yeah. that is that is commitment to your art. Well done. I like to watch the movie first just to sort of take it in and then I'll take notes the second time through. And you really pick up more that way because they did have little intercut scenes with Anna every time she betrayed them. She's up in the trees one time looking at the planes and she yeah. gets this look on her face and it cuts away. Uh, she's in the back of the van with uh, or the back of the truck with the uh, the explosives and she's right. looking at it and it cuts away. So, yeah, every time she leads the Germans to them to distract the Germans. It, it well, totally makes sense. They spend days together, but every piece of evidence that David Niven uses against her is something we saw on film. Yes, right? like there's a scene, a scene that we saw, but but it does a good job. You're not, I'm, not, I wasn't paying attention to her. I was uh, genuinely surprised when she turned out to be, turned out to be a traitor. I didn't expect that. Yes, so I didn't. I thought they did a pretty good job of all the evidence was there. This is something I wanted to talk about. This is a World War II film. Ostensibly, this is a historical fiction of sorts, right? I was interested in looking up what part of the war was this? You know, we, we talked about the radar situation uh, at one point and whether or not that was realistic. But what struck me is I was saying, wow, there were 2,000 British troops in the Aegean in 1943? I looked this up and Chris, you're shaking your head. You're doing exactly the same thing I did. And you know what? There was a campaign called the Dodecanese campaign. When the Italians dropped out of the war, the Germans had to have a sudden scramble to occupy all these bases in the Eastern Mediterranean that were occupied by the Italians. And this actually happened. The British sent in a whole bunch of troops and tried to attack, attack the Dodecanese Islands, which are 12 islands, including roads, all along the coast of Turkey, which, wow. like, they, like they said in the movie, the situation could have brought the Turks into the war on the German side. So there was this whole campaign, and this is in September of 43, I mean, way late in the war. And it was this huge debacle. The Germans occupied all the troops and beat the, beat the British. And it was apparently the last big victory for the Germans in the entire war. So they, they got in there, and, and I was thinking to myself, how did they manage to, how did they swing that? You know, you're talking about an air and sea campaign, getting a couple thousand troops into position suddenly. And uh, the Germans managed to pull it off. It was pretty, pretty, pretty impressive operation, honestly. Sort of showed the capabilities of the Germans in that area. Because Crete was occupied by the Germans still. They had a huge airborne attack on Crete in 41, right at the beginning, that was, you know, put a whole bunch of German troops in position. And they managed to still fight that way, despite having, I don't think, much of a navy in the region at all. Anyway, so there's a little bit of history behind it. This was just sort of loosely inspired by that campaign. But I was thinking, oh, this is just a complete fabrication. The uh, the Anno reveal as traitor is pretty important in the movie. And the way Alec Guinness handles that and forces Mallory into making that decision Alec is Guinness. also pretty important. Alec Guinness is uh, sir, not appearing in this film, Chris. Oh, crap. Sorry. No, that was a different <laughs> film note I had. Um, so apparently David Niven, who I, I'm proud not to have called Larry Niven at any point, Yes, yeah. it occurred to me. I have tried to call him Larry. You just called him Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> Every time I have brought up David Niven, I have said David Niven, like each time. I think if you listen to the podcast later, you'll see that it's like when you find out Anna's a traitor. If you go back and listen to the podcast, you'll find me constantly trying not to say Larry Niven every time I talk about him. But anyway, go ahead. I look forward to that. But apparently in, in the casting of the movie, they mm -hmm. looked at a few different people to play this role, uh, the role of the professor. And Alec Guinness was one of the individuals, and that has just polluted my mind. Uh, the other well, person he would be perfect in this kind of thing. And also, I think he appeared with several of these actors in different things. So I think that'd be why yeah. you're seeing that. So anyway. Bridge, Bridge on the River Kwai. He didn't want to do this yes. because of Bridge, Bridge on the River Kwai. Exactly. Bridge on the River Kwai. Right. 
but the other person that they were looking at was apparently Dean Martin. It was Dean Martin. Oh, oh my okay. God. Okay, interesting. This All is right. deceptively powerful. I was just. Like, <laughs> I just told you it's the sugar. Do you know? Do you know? Actually, there's a lot of sugar in a drink that you have to be careful because it slows the absorption of alcohol. The sugar will stop your stomach from absorbing the alcohol, and it means that what'll happen is what's happening. It'll sneak up on. You. It's like an actual medical phenomenon. But anyway, I have heard that mixing uh, diet coke with a drink will actually make it more powerful in some way. I've heard, I've heard that about Gatorade. Who knows? The thought of those two individuals being in the same part, right. they're just diametrically opposed and it's weird. Yeah, Dean Martin. And, and who was, who was, Dean Martin was supposed to be the David Niven character? Yes. And that's weird. That would, Well, you know what though? I actually kind of thought David Niven was a little miscast. Like the explosives expert is like the professor type. I, I don't know. I thought that was weird. Also, I don't know. I guess it made sense because I kept thinking David Niven, that, that guy's got to be an officer. This is the only movie where he doesn't play an officer. This is right. also the only movie where he doesn't smoke, where he does smoke because he, he was a lifelong non-smoker. Um, and okay. he's also quoted as saying he was pretty miscast, but he's proud of his performance. Yeah, no, he was good. He was very good at it, but I thought he was very strangely miscast. And not miscast, but strangely cast. When I say strangely cast, I mean like Michael Keaton playing Batman. Like I heard that and I was like, what are you talking about? And then I saw the movie and I was like, it's, it's amazing. It's perfect. I, I love him in this role. Yeah, you know, this movie had a sequel. It did. This movie did have a sequel. You're right, Bill. What was that movie called? And who did it star? I think that Chris actually had suggested this that that this what became what was the sequel as as a possibility for our for our session. And it was a film. Actually, we've already talked about it. Uh, I was with Did not talk about it. We talked about it. Harrison Ford in it. I actually, most of my life, I didn't realize the two movies were connected. I thought it was just me being a kid and seeing the same word in the titles and thinking, oh, that's, you know, it's just two, two films about the same World War II battle. Is what so I Force 10 from Navarone was the only Alistair McLean sequel. That's right. And he actually wrote a sequel to the book, a la what Michael Crichton did with Lost World. Michael Crichton actually cranked out a crappy sequel to Jurassic Park and brought back the character he definitely killed in the first book. A hundred percent Ian Malcolm dies in the book. It's not even, it's not like in the film, you know, it, it, there's no, there's no subtlety about it. The guy dies in the book and then he just brings him back in the sequel because the guy's in the film. And I'm like, man, I, you know, I need to pay my mortgage too, but like sometimes you got to have some respect for yourself as an artist. And this is a little, I think we've got enough time behind us. I think we can move on to the biggest surprise. Does anybody have a good biggest surprise? What, biggest uh, surprise. Uh, turns out Navarone's not a real place. Yeah. Also, Jesus is not from there. Another thing I mixed up when I was a kid, I was thinking Jesus from Jesus of Na Navarone. When I was little. <laughs> Jesus from Navarone. So is that your, that's it. That's your big surprise. Navarone does not exist. Yeah. Fair. Not a real place. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, why would you, where did that name come from? Why would you come right. up with a name like that? If it's not a real place. It doesn't even sound Greek. Chris, what was your biggest surprise? I actually had to change my biggest surprise during this podcast because my biggest surprise originally was that the film did not end with Gregory Peck and Anthony Quinn having a face off because I thought that that was presaged all the way through. And then you mentioned that that was something that the writer came up with on the fly as they were doing. The closest they came to having a face-off was- On the cliff. Anthony Quinn, no, no, yes, that happened. But there was a final There was a final moment when Anthony Quinn swam across bullet-infested waters for hundreds of yards 
And then three feet from the ship decided he couldn't make it anymore. And Gregory <laughs> Peck gave him a gaff hook. And he was like, no, man, I can't take that gaff hook from you. And uh, he was like, come on, man. He literally <laughs> said, he said, come on, man. And I was like, really? Come on, man. What do you know? This sounds pretty contemporary, but um, and then he pulls him in and saves him. And that's the moment of, of confrontation. That's what the screenwriter did. Well, sort of. And then they actually have the full final moment when Anthony Quinn decides that he's going with Maria back to the island right. to settle down and live. Very biblical. He's got a replacement wife. What was your original uh, biggest surprise? I thought that they were going to have a face-off at the end of the movie. And it oh, so what's movie. the new biggest surprise? You said you changed it. Oh, the, my, my, my biggest surprise is that the antagonism between them is not in the book. Oh, you didn't change your biggest surprise. Nation for your biggest surprise is what you mean. Like you, like the reason is because the screenwriter just kind of threw that in there at the last minute. Yes, that's my biggest surprise, yes. So my biggest surprise was that every time I hear the phrase Guns of Navarone, I think of the specials song. Do you guys know the song? You know the specials? No. Ska band from the 80s. It's, it's in my particular milieu where I hung out as a, as a, a ne'er-do-well young man. We used to listen to the specials a lot. And they had a song called The Guns of Navarone. It starts out the guy going, Guns of Navarone. And, you know, and then they play this instrumental sequence and it was on, it's on their albums. I didn't realize until I started watching this movie, I'm watching it. And the, the instrumental music that's going on in the background is playing. And I was humming along with it. And I was like, why do I know this song what is that song and i realized oh my god the special song was just an instrumental version was just a ska version of the theme to this movie oh that's awesome so what are we doing are we going to toast this classic well before we get there i have to hear bill's uh drinking game rule oh right bill come on bring it my drinking game rule is that anytime i don't know i think just anytime a a nazi was killed yeah no that's stealing mine. You'd be drinking every time. My- no, that's no. Is that what you said? Did you say no, the same no. thing? No, but the set of, of Nazis who plummet into water would be included within the set all Nazis who were killed, and therefore yours would supersede mine, right? Well, it would be a double drink, which yeah. generally yeah. frowned on drinking. No, I'm pretty <laughs> come up with something. Come on, Bill. What was your favorite part of the movie, Bill? My favorite part of the movie? Uh, how about how about every time the characters in the movie behave like role-playing game party members? You drink. That can be yours. How about that, Dave? That is yours, I like and I get to keep No, mine. I have like 30 of them. That's not fair. No, I, I, I think that there's something about the way that I watch a movie that just lends itself to coming up with drinking game rules. It's just how I enjoy films. Like, I think that's a great <laughs> way to be thinking about all films, and I'm going to have like really cheesy boy. 50, late 50s, early 60s special effect. Oh, that's a good one. I like that's that a good lot. One. That is a good one. That's going to work. How about when someone's climbing a cliff and, and they just turn the camera on its side? <laughs> I think that counts. That's a pretty good 50s, 60s effect. Yes, I like this, Bill. This is what we're doing. Next time we watch this right. movie. Let's watch Force 10 from Navarone using these rules. <laughs> I think that would be great. What that are we going to drink? I actually will finish this bottle, which is, I have not done justice to in any way. So um, what are we doing with this, guys? Are we, gonna, are we going to anoint this as a classic? I'll, I'll go first here because I always go last usually. I think this is a fine war movie within the genre, but I think there are a lot of better ones out there, even in the era. So 
well, I like so some I will, of the subtitles. I will task you to quickly, off the top of your head, name three. I'm going to blame this on Uzo again. I'm slow on the uptake. So Bridge on the River, Kwai, Dirty Dozen. Yes, that's another uh, excellent and better one. I actually and, think The Great Escape is maybe my favorite. That's a really good uh, one. The Great Escape is by far really? the best of these. But uh, there's also the uh, the Sea War one uh, with the Japanese and American views. What's the name of that one? Oh, uh, is that Tora Tora Tora, or is it Midway? It, it, you know, honestly, I think either one of them are better than this. Okay. But I just Run Silent, Run Deep. I think is a better movie. Well, Run Silent, Run Deep is a terrific movie, but I, I know a hundred percent why you're biased towards that movie. Hundred percent because it inspired Star Trek Two. No, actually, I'm just a big fan of Submarine. That's a really good. It's a really good movie, but it also was the inspiration for Star Trek Two. Which one? I, I totally believe that. Run Silent, Run Deep. It's 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 a good it's a good one. So your vote is? My vote is no. I think it's a fine movie. It's just I don't think it's a classic. I can think of many other better war movies. So I and and this one, it it vacillated between awesome. Uh, character building and kind of laughable bad special effects and scenes that didn't make a lot of sense. So, just to play devil's advocate, did any of those movies you're talking about ever inspire a song by the specials? As far as I'm aware, no. Okay. But I am only one vote to quote, three. To quote the professor, QED. All right, go ahead, Bill. You, you remember what he was talking about with QED there? <laughs> I did was when he was proving that Anna was a traitor, right? Because she didn't have scars on her back. No scars. Oh, yes. And I forgot to mention this. I meant to talk about this before. The scars on the back. I literally imagined a guy sitting in the writing room, chewing on his pencil, thinking to himself, all right, the guys that are paying for this movie have asked me to put a bare chested woman into this script somehow. How am I going to do that? How would I get a bear? To Wait, what if she had scars on her back? The guy twisting the script to find a way to get a woman's top off. But she was never bare chested. I like. Not I think that woman honestly might have been. You can't be bare chested in a movie from 1961. That's not a thing. But that's as close think, to bare chested as you can be. I think that woman honestly might have been cast because she had a really pretty back. She was also very, very pretty. Like she was very yes. classically pretty. She reminded me of In the Longest Day. I don't know if you guys actually watched the movie to, to follow along with the podcast, but In the Longest Day, there's one woman in the French Resistance who's just like, all you want to do is put down whatever you're doing and watch this woman walk across the screen. She's just like amazingly beautiful French girl. And I was thinking to myself that for no other reason than that, we need to have the great film of the Ukrainian Resistance because- oh. What part of the world has more like it, you could you could put these women into the Ukrainian army and just be like, here's here's these beautiful women walking by because there actually are model beautiful women, I'm sure, fighting in the Ukrainian army right now. And you could Bill, what do you think? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote yes. Oh, no, this is going to be complicated. Also, here's you why, Dave. Voted, you just voted yes. You're supposed to give us your tortured your tortured thoughts about it. What? Well, here's why, Dave. You know, the special effects, while by today's standards are quite terrible. It, it, it won an Academy Award in 1961. So, Bill, you're saying that anything that wins an Academy Award is a classic? I am saying that for that... It's not an untenable position. I'm not saying it's not an untenable I'm position. I'm not saying that's the only reason. Oh, okay. I'm saying right. that that is a good reason. As well as, I just kind of generally, I liked the way that the film rolled. I felt like it the, the progression of the film went along really well. I mean, and it's totally, it's not like, it's not a depiction of of a real World War II event. It's this, it's this realistic fiction piece 
the acting was decent, if not good. I mean, I, I think like I think Peck did a pretty good job. I think Niven did a pretty good job. I think all the actors. I think Anthony Quinn, by the way, maybe was the best. I, I, I think you might be right. He, his character might have been my favorite of them all. Yeah. yeah. I think Niven was my favorite, but Quinn might have been the best, if that makes sense. Quinn, Anthony Quinn was one of those characters where you're like, I don't know if necessarily, like Gregory Peck, like I said, has a certain gravitas. Or not gravitas, but just a charisma. You just want to watch him. It's just fun to watch. Charismatic dude. Charismatic dude. But Anthony Quinn's character was such a badass that you just, how can you not? It's like Boba Fett walking on screen. You're like, who's that guy? You know, that, that bit where the Germans, there's like 30 Germans chasing him up the hill. And Andrea is just like popping up behind the rocks and sniping guys. You're just like, yeah, I, we didn't even talk about that, that scene. Like, that was a great that. scene. And the best capper for that is he shows up at the rendezvous point before the rest before of them. Do, like, yes, he beats everybody. Yeah, right. I was waiting for you. Like, I've been waiting for you guys for like two hours. Or, or the part when he just like Jedi senses the spy outside the door when they're hanging out at the beginning, talking about the plan. And then they, they you know, they, they're talking to him and, and they're like, you know, you're being kind of lazy. And he's like, oh no, I heard you guys like five minutes ago. All right, so we've got one vote for and one again. Technically, I mean, I chose this, but I think when we have three people, I think it's just up for legitimate voting rights because we don't have to have a tie. So I would say, I like where Chris was going with this because I like that there's a lot of spectacular movies in this era, especially. You know, between 1960 and 1970, it up to, from from Lawrence of Arabia to Pat, there's a lot of these historical war movies that are just like just gems. You know, I mean, Anthony Quinn is in Lawrence of Arabia, right? He plays he plays somebody in that. You're talking about people that are in Bridge on the River Kwai. You're talking about the Longest Day. I mean, there's just some really great films. And in that sense, I feel like this is kind of a run of the mill entry. It's not of the same caliber as Lawrence of Arabia. And it's not of the same caliber as Bridge on the River Kwai. And it's not of the same caliber. Well, you know what? I actually, other than George C. Scott's performance, I think Patton is about the same quality as this, although it's got a bigger historical scope to it. It's a really tough choice because I enjoyed this film. This is a 61-year-old movie, 62-year-old movie now, because it's January. Yeah, I mean, for the record, I think it's a really good movie. It's It's... Do you think it's a classic is really the question. It's really tough. It's a really tough call because like I said, part of me wants to say that any film that's 62 years old that I watch and I'm not bored for two and a half hours and that I'm seeing so many influences from this film onto other things later. Oh, it's tough. That's right mm -hmm. on the edge. It's right on the edge of what I'd like to call a classic. But I totally agree with Chris's points about how here's what I'm going to say. I think sometimes in the history of film, you get a cluster of movies that are all of the same ilk. And yet they're so good. You've got so many of the best people working in them that by example, the 1980s from 1980 to 1990, there are a whole bunch of teenage coming of age movies that are terrific, that have some of the best actors working at the time, some of the best directors writing, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Risky Business, Say Anything. They're all kind of the same thing. And one of them might not be a lot better than the other, but they're all pretty much classics because it's just a great time in film history. I think the World War II movies of the 60s are just, and, and, and I'm aware that Lawrence Arabia, by the way, is the first World War movie. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, just war films of that time period. I think there's just a lot of great movies in this cluster. And I think I'm going to vote for this being a classic because I think this one 
is one of them. I, I think it's one of the 10 films of the 60s. It's these great war movies. I think it's just a great time in film history. And I'm going to go ahead and vote for it. I'm not so. even upset because I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fine movie. And if it's a classic, then it's a classic. And we have said it so. Here we go. Cheers. Raising I wish we knew a good Greek toast, but I actually don't off the top of my head. Opa. But I think Opa, Opa. Isn't, isn't that what you say when you throw a glass at the wall during a during a cell? But Opa, that sounds good. I enjoyed this film. I had a good time with it. I had a great time drinking Uzo with you guys. I want to say goodbye to the Toasting of the Classics listeners and uh, let you guys have a chance to say goodbye. Goodbye, listeners. And I will say Uzo gets better the more you drink. Which is a common trait of most alcoholic drinks in my experience. But yeah. It's the more I drink better. Uzo, the better I like, the more I like Uzo. All right, guys. Peace out. That's it for episode 69 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, hang on to that grappa for our discussion of the John Steinbeck novella Tortilla Flat. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and let us know your favorite 60s World War II movie. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics. That's all right. I wasn't going to say anything smart.